So longtime listeners of the show will probably remember Jay Davis, who's been on a number of times. Well, in addition to being a friend and a consulting client, I'm excited to say now that he's also a sponsor of this show. Last year, when I was spending a lot of time at his company's office, he started a new company called Pillow Cube, which is this awesome memory foam rectangle pillow that's tall enough for me to be a side sleeper, but not have to have my head sag down like when I try to fold over my regular pillows. It's really pretty amazing, and for any side sleepers like me, it's great so we don't have to wake up with shoulder pain. On top of that, it's been really fun for me to see him have so much success because it's been selling like crazy. Anyways, if you're a side sleeper, I highly recommend going to pillowcube.com and getting one for yourself. I can make that transition. All of a sudden, then that why that we all talk about becomes a little bit easier, right? Because I know who I am. I don't know if that's gobbledygook that I've got in my head that makes sense to me, but it doesn't make sense when I say it out loud. But I think that's the first place, okay? To the entrepreneurs who are looking to build their thing so they can sell it, okay? Who are you? Well, I'm a leader. Nobody can take that away from you. You could be a leader anywhere. So then you just go down to the basic premises of what do leaders do? Leaders develop people. Leaders train people. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, I've got Errol Dobler. Errol, thanks for making time. Jess, the pleasure is all mine. Thanks for having me. So as far as I'm concerned, you've got a really cool background. Do you want to give us just the quick overview and then we'll go back through some of the questions and, and tell us about the new book? Yeah, for sure. I'm a New Yorker by trade and you know I, I do I do a, a lot of podcasts these days, you know, promote the book and things like that. And I make the same joke. New Yorkers love to tell everybody they're from New York. So there we are. Um, from Long Island, went to the United States Naval Academy for college. And then I, right out of uh, the Naval Academy, I was actually on a ship first. I was at what's called the Surface Warfare Officer on the USS Monongahela, which is a part of my background that I'm very proud of that we don't talk about very often because it's not that sexy, but you know, I, it, was, it was a great experience. Then I laterally, laterally transferred over to the SEAL teams and I was an assistant platoon commander at SEAL Team 4, a platoon commander at SEAL Team 1. I got injured on deployment and medically discharged. And then I spent about three or four years in the private sector, kind of licking my wounds. And then 9-11 happened, felt the call to kind of get back into the fight, got myself medically cleared and spent 13 years in the FBI working primarily counterterrorism operations out of the New York office. And then I did some Russian organized crime and some gang work as well, a little public uh, corruption. And, and then I decided it was just time to move on and start my own leadership consulting firm. And that's it, Leader 193. Uh, Leader 193, 193 is my Bud's Hell Week class, just kind of paying homage to a very special time in my life. I love being in the SEAL teams. And now here I am, the culmination of my career on your podcast, Jess. So it can all end today. <laughs> <laughs> Too funny. Well, and... And back then, was was Team 4 SDV stuff back then? No, Team 4 South and Central America. Uh, team 2, team it's SDV 2 was, is out on the East Coast. Okay. So it's SDV 2, and then there's also Team 2, SEAL Team ah, 2. Ah, okay. Yeah, yeah. So tell us about the new book. I, I've started it. I'm liking it. Well, uh, I, and, I, and I know you're, you're an audio book guy, and I didn't get a chance to get to you soon enough. The audio book came out 
I, about three weeks oh. ago. So I should have, should have forwarded you that. Uh, yeah. I've been doing a, <laughs> I've been doing making my computer read it to me in like robot voice. So. <laughs> so, so it's a good place to fall asleep, right? Just listening to robot voice in audiobooks. But no, I, I appreciate you bringing it up. It, the, the process, art, and science of leadership, how leaders inspire confidence and clarity in combat in the boardroom and at the kitchen table. And I, I wrote the book primarily as a user's guide. I, I didn't have any intention on it being inspirational or full of a lot of stories. I was finally convinced that I had to put some stories in there, A, to make it a little more entertaining, and, and B, to, to show the points I was making from a leadership process I developed from the experience I just uh, explained to you. It's, it is a wholly unique process, and it is, you know, it's born and bred from lots of blood, lots of sweat, and lots of tears, and I believe in it, and I've been you know, presenting it to clients since 2016. And we've been having real good success. And then it was just time to put out the book. So yeah, that's, again, I wanted it to be a real user's manual. I, I intend to write another more entertaining book in the future, but yeah, so that's it. That's the book. Appreciate you bringing it up. Well, I appreciate your level of humility and, and transparency. You know, the stuff you get into right off the bat is not maybe the typical, look at me, I'm so great stuff. Like you're, you're warts and all, and you own it really hard. And anyways, I commend you for doing that. It takes courage. And, and I think it's a gift to the rest of us. Well, I, I appreciate that. And, you know, I, I get that. That's the comment I get a lot. And, and it's, it's what I was going for in the sense of not to get compliments, but, you know, it's just, it really was who I am. I've had, I've had a very, I've had a great career. Right. And, and I, I'm proud of my resume and everybody brings it up. But, you know, the power in the message I send truly is from my mistakes. And, you know, I just I, I felt like a hypocrite if I, I would have felt like a hypocrite if I didn't put those things in there. And my, a lot of it might have been also, you know, along the way, I, I've got a fairly big personality and, and, you know, I like to do things my way. And, and you know, after years of doing that, sometimes you you rub people the wrong way. And, and the other part of it was, if I, if I could be even more honest, I just wanted to cut all the haters off at the pass. I wanted to put everything I did out there before somebody could say, yeah, but did you know this about him? I just wanted it out there. I wanted it done and over with. So, but it was mostly to inspire people to realize nobody's perfect, regardless of what the resume says. Let's just embrace these mistakes we made. What, what are you doing going forward? So yeah, and again, I appreciate you bringing that part of it up as well. It was a very conscious decision. Well, to me, it's it's very optimistic of you because, you know, if you want a girl to date you, usually on the first date is not when you bring up everything wrong you've ever done in life. <laughs> and, uh, you know, anything's like this, right? Like, it's you know like, when you, like when you page one. <laughs> yeah. When you go to the, when you go to a job interview, we're typically putting our best foot forward. We're trying to, we're trying to come across as attractive and stable and, you know, what, whatever it is we think that will be attractive to them often. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's a bold move to, to own it so hard up front, which fr frankly, some may turn off some people like, let's just be honest about it. Right. Yeah. And I think probably very few because you don't make excuses from it and because you quickly get onto and, and I don't excuse it. I've built from there on your mistakes. Right. But, but it's, it's real. Do you know what I mean? Like, the, and, and there's certainly like the natural human inclination that could be fearful of it. And yet when you think about those people that we look up to, especially like high integrity leaders, isn't it such a gift to the rest of us when they say, 
I made this huge mistake and I don't believe that makes me a mistake. Being able to separate that out. Like I, I, even to the point of like, I did something bad and I don't think that makes me a bad human. That just, that's just a a human kind of thing. And as soon as someone else can go first, say like, oh, let me tell you about the dumbest thing I did. And then you're like, wow, they are not like wallowing in shame and self-pity that they're a bad person. They just like recognize that was a poor choice and they don't want to make that one again. Yeah. You know, you like- know, and, and it goes to look, it, it goes to a lot, you know, and I, I think generally people who write books like I wrote leadership books are, are being, you know, humble. I've read most of the books by team guys and I never got the, you know, the indication from many of them that they were beating their chest. There, there's always the proper degree of humility. And if they're telling war stories, they're telling war stories. And same thing with CIA folks. And there's not many FBI books out there. Every now and then you run into one. So I think from that standpoint, everybody's trying to put their best foot forward, show some humility. But the other reason I did all, well, there's a couple other things. It was time to separate a little bit with the world of Instagram. And, and I, I, you know, I'm active on it. That's just, that's the battlefield today, right? If you're going to be in this business, you better be on Instagram and Facebook and all that stuff. And we take a good hard look at what we put out and we say, look, are we, is this us? We don't want to present anything that is not us. You know, right now I'm at a family member's house in Colorado. They've got a guest house next to their beautiful house that they've worked hard to earn. They invited us out for a couple of months. So we're, we came out here and I want everybody to know this is not my house. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's so it's those little things that I thought it was important in today's day and age of people pretending to be something they're not. I didn't, I just wanted to not be anywhere close to that. The other thing is those were the stories that that's the, 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 that's the meat around my leadership process, those mistakes. Okay. Cause that my process is dare I say foolproof. You, you follow this process, not what, and if anybody has ever worked with me, they'll know it's not what Errol says to do. It's the things Errol makes you look at. Then you start deciding what to do. This is all born from all of my mistakes, right? All those things came from a lack of emotional awareness, unawareness of what I was doing and how I was impacting other people, not really deciding what behaviors were going to be important to me. It, it all came from somewhere. So that was the other part of the reason why I wanted to really just kind of open the kimono, as they as they say. Somebody said to me one time, boy, you really opened the kimono on that one, didn't you? <laughs> That's great. No, it's great. The, the other thing too, though, is as a skeptical guy and somebody who, you know, consumes large numbers of books, right? I I am a little jaded about leadership books. So my very favorite books of all time are leadership books. And a lot of like the waste of time books I've been through are like, oh, kind of, kind of tired, kind of preachy, kind of, you know, this kind of stuff. Right. Yeah. And so like, I'm not necessarily proud of it, but I am constantly reading books with the like, prove to me, prove to me you've got something that hasn't been said 300 times, you know? Yeah, yeah. And and so by you owning it hard up front and still believing I have something to share, I'm actually willing to go with you on that journey more because of it. Mm-hmm. Because I'm like, wow, here's a guy who is is not giving himself a free pass on previous mistakes and and still has confidence that he's got he's you know, he and doesn't think that disqualifies him for having something to say. It it really sucked me in. So yeah, and and I think and I appreciate that and I, and I think that I was able to do that because in the end, I've also done a lot of good things, right? And that's why- Absolutely. Yeah. And I get to say, look, I was a surface warfare officer. I was a SEAL. I was in the private sector. I was an FBI agent. I've started my own company. 
I'm, I'm pretty comfortable telling you some of my, some of my ugliness. Yeah. Right. And which, which comes across as less braggy when you present yourself as a three dimension, as a real human, as a three dimensional human, instead of a two dimensional Instagram human. Right. Yeah. And so it's funny though, that we're having this conversation because I, I do get that comment about the book. And again, it was, it was intentional. And I think it's important for all the reasons we just discussed. But I, you know, I'm starting another one and, you know, this book will hopefully be a little more entertaining. I think it's still going to be a leadership book. I'm not sure. I've got a ton of stories. How do I present them in a way that people enjoy, but get a message? So I'm, I'm still working on that. But I said to my wife, I said, I have to put some good stories in there. I have to, I have to remind people I did do yeah, one yeah. or two things, right? <laughs> we did have some successes going on. So it is, a but it also line. makes me, it makes me less likely to discount your good experiences because of your self-awareness about the other ones. Yeah. And it's, and it's just such an important, you know, it's, I, I do know, I work with leaders of all levels. And what I guarantee is that if you are coming in, working with me with an open mind and an open heart, you'll get better. You'll get better as an individual. You'll get better as a leader. You just will. Because those are the people, the people who are searching will grasp and find anything that works for them and make it work for them. So that that's the, that's the easy part. Boy, when I get on with somebody who's been directed to work with me, which happens a lot, right? The CEO of a company says, you five people go work with Errol. You just know right away the ones who they want no part of you. How dare you even tell me what, you know, and you try to tell them, look, I'm not telling you what to do. I'm not telling you what to think. What I'm asking for this two months that we're going to be together and sometimes six months is just take it for a test drive. That's all I'm saying. Just open your mind, take it for a test drive. And when people can't do that, boy, you, you just wonder what what is your life like? If you can't even listen to somebody who's got some amount of credibility and say, just just open your open your mind and your heart a little bit, try this. And they'll say, no, I, I wonder how they have the job that they have, you know, and then it's always tough when, when the boss who hired um, me says, okay, what do you think? It's, I've only had to have these conversations a few times, but it's like, and then there's Bill and Bill, Bill thinks I'm an idiot, I guess. I don't know. He doesn't want, you know, what do you say? You know, and you, those you are know what's funny? Yeah. It's interesting in those situations though, how often it's not a shock to the boss. It's not, you're right. And, it's never a shock. And, He's like, I figured. And they haven't wanted to take, I mean, they haven't wanted to take, they haven't wanted to have the hard conversations. In fact, I think about times that we've been hired or I brought team guys or Delta guys or bureau guys with me to come co-teach some of the stuff we've done, right? And they're almost hoping that we'll do the hard work for them. I feel like sometimes, you, right? That is a great point. You're exactly right. So the few times I've had to do it and I hate it because, you know, I'll talk with my wife. She works with me in the business and I'll say, I, I'm just not so sure this is my place. I'm not, you know, you get confused. You're like, well, I'm supposed to be making them better. Now I'm going to recommend they get fired, <laughs> you know? So, but yeah, yeah. The, the few times I've done it, the, the boss has always been like, yeah, I figured as much. And um, but it's, yeah. You know, can I pass on one good advice from one, one of my mentors? Please, please. So I was so excited when I was going to be able to go teach some, some team guys down in Coronado. And I was really looking forward to it. And then like the night before, or, was, or like a day before, two days before, somewhere in there, I was panicking. I was like, oh man, I'm the one who has to, I'm the one who has to show up here. Right. You know, and I'm like, you know, you look at like overgeneralizations in the world, women are, are super harshly judged on how beautiful they are. Mm -hmm. And men are judged on how tough they are. Like right. just as an oversimplification, right? right? I'm like, 
oh, it's going to be about 0.01 seconds before all of them know they're tougher than me when I get up there, right? I'm this like, I'm this like tall, lanky, six foot three guy, you know? And, and so I called the guy who had been working that contract before me, mm-hmm. friend, mentor guy. And he, he just gave me some, he said, well, I'll tell you what I do. And so that's exactly what I did. Afterwards. He said, and so I, I did it and I got up and I said, Hey, listen, I'm not here to tell you how to do your job. I don't know how to do your job. What I'm here to do is to tell you what I've been studying for the last few years. And then it's going to be your job to tell me how it applies to your job. Does that work for people? Right. And yeah. it's been like a magic trick, you know? It, it, it's, you know, and again, I, I have the same, a similar technique, right? And, and so, and I'm going to kind of plagiarize a little bit of what you just said, because it's, it's, it's beautiful. But, you know, a lot of times, you know, I'll tell people, look, Again, I'm a leadership consultant, not a business consultant. I understand business, obviously, but I'm not here to tell you what decisions to make. I'm here to see how you're making the decisions you make. And, you know, again, I'm not, you know, it's always trying to tell them, I'm not here to tell you your business. <laughs> okay. And it does, again, for the person who is open minded, that makes them even more open. But for the person who's on the fence, they'll fall on the side of, of right. But for the person who doesn't care, they, it doesn't matter what you say. And I'm sure you've seen that. And look, team guys and special operation guys in general, they're a tough nut. I don't even know if they're a tough nut to crack, but they're a, a nut you have to crack, right? You, you have to show them that you are at least an expert in your field. You're willing to have a sense of humor, and but you're also not willing to acquiesce because, oh, you're a Delta guy or whatever. You'll get the immediate respect and full buy-in. If you come any other way, you may not. So that was excellent <laughs> advice that your mentor gave you because that's the best way to a team guy's heart. I think from my experience, a special operator's heart. And if I can, the, you know, the, the leadership book thing you brought up, if you don't mind, that's the, the, the market saturated with leadership books, right? And that was also a concern. You know, it, when is enough enough? And, you know, I, I was a student of leadership books right? And when you read enough of them, it's like, okay, whatever. But what I thought back was every one of those books, I got one thing out of them. And then I went and said, okay, what are the common threads? If I see and read something three times in a book, that's probably something I I should count on. So while I had the same skepticism towards some leadership books, you know, that's what finally decided, I decided I'm going to do it anyway. And then there's you know, Jocko, right? Everybody's talking about Jocko these days and, and Echelon Front. And they're doing, they're doing wonderful things. And he is a great personality and he's got a great story and so do the rest of them. I get every now and then, so what are you like, Jocko? And I said, well, no, because Jocko is a very unique personality and I'm not him. But what I can tell you is you're going to find nothing but similarities in our books because we're both team guys but we're going to be presenting it just a little bit different. And that's the beauty of these leadership books. Somebody may love the way one team guy presents the same concept and another than, okay, you've done your job. So anyway, that's my comments on leadership books in general. (laughs) Well, to that point though, you know, Exodus says, or no, I don't know. Somewhere in the old Testament, it says there's nothing new (laughs) under the sun. Okay. I think it's Ecclesiastes. (laughs) And my favorite creativity book of all time is by Austin Kleon. And one of the, one of the very first, like the, I think it's like the opening page to it actually is this quote from a guy named Andre Gide. And the, the whole book is about, the whole book is about saying like, nothing's original. Like we all, we all learn, we recombine it and we make it our own thing. And like the best thing as artist, poet, writer, movie producer, anything is to realize nothing comes from nothing. As soon as you get over that, 
then you can start learning from all the greats and recombining it your way. It's kind of it's exactly right. It's exactly right. You know, and, and, and eventually somebody's going to get the message, right? When they're ready to receive the message, they're going to receive it. When they're not, they're not. So the, this opening quote from Andre Gide says, uh, everything that needs to be said has already been said, but since no one was listening, everything must be said again. <laughs> that's exactly right. That's so, exactly right. Anyways, I, that's a thought. Well, listen, <laughs> kind of where I'm hoping to go with today is, at least for the beginning of the year, what we're starting off with is, you know, we've done 500 episodes. We've got thousands and thousands of people a month listening to this thing, but we, we want to have more of a community with our listeners. So we're inviting them. We're, we're starting this thing. I think we're going to call it Greystoke Live. And it's especially going to be for like entrepreneurs and investors. Okay. So kind of the two sides of it are like the entrepreneurs who are building something and specifically, how can they build it to sell it? Like what kind of decisions do they need to make now that would make it attractive for whether they're passing on to the kids, whether they're selling to a third party, selling to an employees, doesn't matter. Nobody lives forever. You are going to pass this on at some point. And some right. people do want to retire early. So maybe that's sooner than later, right? Right. And then for the investor side, it's like after maybe somebody's had a big exit or this stuff like that, right? We're working with some family offices and some people on that side. It's it's doing some things of like thinking through their acquisitions. What are they buying? Why are they buying it? How are they thinking about it? But, but we have had some of the guys on that side say that they want to just straight out have conversations with their peers about, hey, what are, you know, like people look at our lives. So like we're going to do one group just for second generational wealth, right? Mm -hmm. Saying everybody looks at your life. They think you got handed everything on a silver platter. So how could you have any problems, mm -hmm. right? And right. he's like, guess what? We're humans. We have different problems, but we have problems too, right? Yeah. And so, you know, for those guys, there's, they think daddy handed you everything and the businesses or the family office employees or other people like that, you have to prove yourself triple because everybody assumes you're, you don't have what it takes to be here by, right. you know, their default position is you must not have what it's likes to be here. Cause you're a relative, you know, and they have to overcome some of these things. Right. So I'd love to talk about just your leadership principles and how it might apply to these two groups. So maybe we can start with the entrepreneurs. I'll give you one statistic, which is 70, supposedly 75% of entrepreneurs are unhappy after they sell the company. And it's because of two things. Either they didn't plan for what they were going to do next and like golfing for three weeks straight all of a sudden gets old. And now they're like, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? Right. And right. They, they're not actively engaged in progression anymore. And they, their whole identity was the old business. Now they feel like they have no identity. Life should just, is life just over this kind right. of stuff. Right. Yep. They haven't, they haven't picked the next fight to yep. the next, the next mission to how they're going to, what their next adventure is. Right. And then the other one is so many of them looking back saying, man, if I just prepared a little different, instead of getting 3X, I could have got 5X. Or instead of getting 5X, I could have got 10X or whatever it is, mm -hmm. right? Right, yeah. So one of those thoughts is leadership. I mean, so many entrepreneurs, they started it because they're the visionary, they're the, they're the guy, or she's, she's the one who figured this out. You know, I had these great women on the show yesterday in the early 20s who at NYU, they figured out how to use artificial intelligence to cut the costs on creating new chemicals by 75% because they have the computer do the tests instead of real time. Great, right? Right. Well, <laughs> right. if they want to sell that business, like you got to hope that library, that AI library can run itself because if she's gone, what's the business, right? Right. So right. this is a really long question. I apologize, yeah. but lead yeah, no. <laughs> So my, my first thought is thinking about an entrepreneur who has been heavily involved in the business Mm -hmm. And realizes if somebody's going to buy this, they're going to give me a way better price if my team's leadership skills are to the point that they can run it without me. And not just run it, that they can grow it without me. Yep. 
when you think about how to stop being the guy, how to stop being the woman, right? Mm -hmm. That everybody turns to for decisions and, and cultivating not just systems to run the business, but systems to develop the next leaders and stuff like this. Yeah. Where do you start? What's, what's your, that's my problem. How you help me? Yeah. So well, here's the first part, right? We, we have to start with an identity because it all goes in, right? You, there's a lot to unpack in, with what you just said. And the first thing is what I advise people who are stuck on, I am the CEO. And I said, well, for now, what happens when that gets taken away from you? Well, you know, I'll be good. And as we, just like you said, as we work through it and I say, well, who are you? Who are you? Do you present yourself as the CEO of company X everywhere you go? Because if you do, how does that sound to you? A couple of people go, I do. And it sounds terrible. Great. Now we're getting on the right track. You know, some, you know, because, but then the question becomes, who are you? And if you're identifying with something that can be taken away from you, change it. You've got to change it. And I know that firsthand because I wanted to be a SEAL for my entire career. I wanted to be, a, I loved it. I, I didn't, I had no intention on getting out. And then all of a sudden, and I identified myself as Errol Dobler, Navy SEAL. And then all of a sudden I wasn't. And then what the hell was I? And it was a long slog to figure that out. Who, what, who am I? You know, what's my why? These are very big, big questions. But if you don't figure out who you are, your why and all this other stuff will never happen. So again, I tell people you have to, what is your behavior? What is the thing that you can identify yourself as that no matter where you bring it, it makes you better at that. It makes you a better CEO. It makes you a better father. It makes you a better mother. It makes you a better brother, son, sister, whatever. If you can identify yourself with something that can't be taken away from you. So what does that mean? Right? So right now, you know, as I, as I've gone through this, you know, I was, I'm 52 now. I, I left the SEAL teams. I don't know why I was 31, right? It's only been in the last few years that I've gotten my arms around very tightly on who I am. Okay. And that's saying a lot. I have three young kids. I could just as easily say I'm a father and I'm a husband. Well, guess what? There's a lot of tragedy out there. And there's a lot of people who identified themselves with that. And all of a sudden one day they weren't a father and a husband anymore because of some tragedy. That's a dark, morbid thing to say, but it's true. Okay. So who am I? All right, Errol, what's your advice? Well, I have now presenting myself to me as somebody who brings their best self to every situation they walk in. Not Week to week, month to month, I mean minute to minute. And that is constantly on my mind. Can somebody take that away from me? If I stop being the, the CEO and founder of Leader 193, but that's who I am, I naturally go into the next spot because my mindset is I'm bringing my best self into a new situation. My new situation is confusion about what I'm going to do next, how I'm going to make myself busy, how I'm going to find some worth. But because that's who I am, I can make that transition. All of a sudden, then that why that we all talk about becomes a little bit easier, right? Because I know who I am. I don't know if that's gobbledygook that I've got in my head that makes sense to me, but it doesn't make sense when I say it out loud. But I think that's the first place, okay, to the entrepreneurs who are looking to build their thing so they can sell it, okay? Who are you? Well, I'm a leader. Nobody can take that away from you. You could be a leader anywhere. So then you just go down to the basic premises of, what do leaders do? Leaders develop people. Leaders train people. Leaders say, here's what I want you to do. Tell me how you're going to do it, because that's my job as a leader, to set the direction, situation, and mission. Here's the situation. Here's why we need to act. The mission is this. Folks, tell me how you're going to do that. that. Now you are training people. That is, that's the formula. It's as simple as that. 
Okay. We have to let go of the ego and all that stuff. But if you do it that way, that is your first step to letting go of the vine, as they say, not micromanaging anymore. Okay. There's a lot more to it, but I, I don't know. What do you think? Are we on the right track? Does, is what I'm saying making any sense at all? Yeah. It's just painful because I'm thinking <laughs> about the things that I over-identify with just the investment company chairman. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like I get treated differently and it's, you know, and I was like 28 when I became the CEO of a private equity fund and I was making more money than any of my, many of my friends, anybody my age that I had any contact with and people started treating me special. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And, and when I had, you know, when I had some like concerns about my own acceptance, my own acceptability, Mm-hmm. Man, it's a pretty big band-aid when everybody else accepts you. It's a huge distraction from having to worry that you don't think you're acceptable. Well, look, you know that's, I mean? yeah, that, and that's a huge issue with people who are in the position that you just described, like you were in, right? Those CEOs now, all of a sudden, they've made it. All of a sudden, they've got everything they need. And all of a sudden, people are coming out of the woodworks, right? I've seen it a hundred times, okay? And to almost to a person, and maybe, now, Jess, you're probably going to say, well, I never did that. But almost to a person, they've got to go through a whole new metamorphosis on who they are, okay? Because they're realizing first, they're going to kind of give, they want to give, they want to give. And then all of a sudden, they realize there's a lot of takers out there. Wait a second, nobody's giving me, right? Not giving me things. Nobody is giving me courtesy. Nobody's giving me, they're just leeching. So now you start lopping people off, okay? And then all of a sudden you get bigger and now new people come in. And now you've got to start establishing that I am somebody who holds boundaries. I am somebody who requires that I still get treated with the courtesy and respect, even though I've got money and can provide things, right? Once those boundaries are starting to set, that's still who you are. Who you are can continue, should continue to evolve, and it should continue to evolve based on your circumstances, Okay. The second that somebody says, I don't owe anybody anything because of my success. That sounds like a very negative thing. Like, oh, I don't owe anybody anything. That's not what we're saying. That is not the spirit of what we're saying. What we're saying is just because I have worked hard and I have this money and I have these things, it doesn't mean that I have to absorb everything, all of your negative energy, everything that you want, everything that you think I owe you. That's a hard place for a person who's had massive success to get to, but they get there the hard way. <laughs> you know what I mean? Or if they don't get there, they end up super bitter. The ones who do get there, the ones who say, look, I've got to set boundaries. I've got to set strong boundaries. And I've got somebody, I've got a, I've got a cousin calling me out of the blue and asking me for 2000 bucks. Yeah, I've got 2000 bucks. I probably have it in my pocket, but guess what? I'm not giving it to you, not because I don't love you, not because I don't support you, but because that is not going to help you. We all know it's not going to help them. Can I, can I tell you like one of my favorite pieces of wisdom when I was like 25 and made money for the first time before I lost it all the first time, <laughs> this guy, Joel Davis, and we've had him on the show. Everybody should go back and listen to his episode. My brother and I have all these Joel Davisisms. That's what we call them. Okay. Mm. And he had been, got extremely wealthy of all things by importing chocolate into Canada to sell to try from Canada to the States to Trader Joe's and then had this huge collapse uh, with some stuff that went wrong during year 2000, New Year's celebrations with messing up some orders and lost everything and then built it all back up again. Okay. But one of his is never lend money. He says, what you do is you say, you tell people, I don't lend money, but I do give money. Right. 
So why don't you tell me your situation? I'm going to go back and we'll talk about it and we'll let you know how we feel. And he says, does two things. He's like, when either you give the money or you don't. And if you don't, don't explain. You just say, we thought about it and we just didn't feel like it'd be wise. Right. And you have to say, we don't think it'd be wise for you. We don't think it'd be wise for us. Okay, right? Right. He says, two things happen is either way, they never ask again because they know you don't lend money and they feel too guilty asking. And if they really do ask, maybe you ought to really consider it, you know, right? But yeah. But, but it's still um, something I'm sure I'm sure some of the things I said resonated with you, right? Having been in that position. But but absolutely, right? I mean, it's I I want to say it's like Benjamin Franklin. I don't know who said something along the same lines of like, if you want to bring an enemy closer or a or push a friend away, lend the money. Yeah, you know, it's look, I've had to I've been as I borrowed five thousand dollars from my best friend 30 years ago, whatever it was. And, and I was in a spot and I called him and I said, man, I'm in a spot, right? I need money. And he said, well, how much, you know, best friend. He goes, how much do you need? I said, $5,000. And he goes, oof, <laughs> right? So, cause when you're in your late twenties, he was a super successful guy. And he goes, all right. He goes, yeah, I, I can get it to you. And I didn't even say, I'll pay you back. I didn't even say, cause in my mind, I'm like, I'm not going to go that route. I'm just going to pay him back. I, I was humiliated, right? But I'm, this story means nothing. I'm just telling a story around. It took me a year to pay him back. And I would pay him back, right? I, I got a job. I got myself square. And, you know, I'd have 100 extra bucks. I'm like, there's 100. And he's like, okay. And then, you know, it would go that way. He's like, wait a second. <laughs> he, goes, what? he goes, what is this, layaway? He goes, can't you just put it aside and give me the five grand at a time? I said, no, I'm keeping track. I said, but you're not going to get it back that way. This way you're going to get it back <laughs> anyway. But lending money is tough. But look, the, it, back to your point, back to your question. The other thing is, if you are not letting go of the day-to-day in your business as a leader, I would say, and I'm not an expert in this field, right? I don't, I'm dabbling now in these days of people selling their businesses and understanding it and investors coming in where we're helping with the leadership aspect of things, but I'm no means an expert. But I will tell you this, the chances of somebody looking at your business as worth buying on a large scale probably isn't going to happen if you're not leading the correct way, because then you're not going to get right the effective business going. Now, I know what happens, right? It happens with those these innovation, right? The tech companies. I built this great technology. That's I think that's a different story, right? That's a different set of circumstances. Any other company that doesn't build this unique thing that is just grinding it out, if you don't let go and you don't do the proper things of delegating those authorities, decentralizing that command, right? I know you've heard that a million times, decentralize, decentralize, decentralize. You know, we can teach you how to decentralize, but I just don't think people are going to be looking at your business. It's not going to be worth much if you're not doing that anyway. And you have more experience in that. So, you, you know, tell me what you think. No, I, I completely agree. And as you were saying that, I was thinking... Not only do you need to develop leaders, but you need to develop developers, right? Because it's great that you've developed a great leadership team, but what, when you leave, is, is, there, is there a leadership pipeline now over, you know? Right, right. So, so I want to think about this because, you know, one thing that I, I do appreciate, appreciate about the team guys, and we, you know, both with the charity on the consulting side, we, we get to spend time with folks from all different branches. And, and I've got certain things I like better about all of you guys, okay? But <laughs> one of the things that I... One of the things that I think I appreciate the most about the team guys is, and Steve Wazowski and I were talking about this when he was on last month, 
I don't know if it's because you guys have your lives in each other's hands when you're doing a night dive and it's, there's just the two of you and there's nobody else that can come to help or what, but like the, the genuineness of like, you are my brother. Like I will do anything for you. Kind of like that brotherly team, team, team feel like the other guys all have it, but I do. It does feel different when I'm with you guys on that stuff. And mm. I think about like fostering that in an organization, including how can, how can, a, how can an entrepreneur, CEO, whoever, who's thinking, Hey, this is going to sell at some point. How right. can they not just do that for their top people, but how can they, I guess, in addition to setting the example, what's, what's one small step they can take to make, to try and help their top people start having more of that feeling with their top people. Good question. Hard question. As far as the team guys go, look, there's, you get that a lot. Why, why are you so special? And look, Delta is special, right? The whole thing. I always say team guys are just a little different because of the water. The water is what separates us from everybody else. Okay. Everybody else dabbles in the water. We are the, the water experts. And I think in an honest moment, every other group would acknowledge that. I grew up by the water. I'm in Colorado right now. I'm like, ah, I'm not, I'm not near the water right now. There's just a little something about people who love the water, right? To look at surfers and all that stuff. So that's one thing. There's an inherent uniqueness of the type of person who becomes a SEAL. The other thing, though, is the expectations on what's required, the things we do, right? The culture. If you, you, know, you read my book, Cultural Awareness and Recognition, culture made up of the things you do, okay? Not the labels you put on them. And they were very clear in the SEAL teams, right? We are aggressive, right? We plan before we act. We innovate, we adapt, you know, all these things. And if you didn't get on board to those things, you got left behind. And they were clear. They weren't put up on the wall or anything like that. It's just the culture that was built. It's just the way things were. When the, when the way things are done are that clear and you get on board, all of a sudden, everybody's singing off the same sheet of music, right? So that's, that's the first thing. What can an entrepreneur do to start cultivating that? What can any leader do to start cultivating that? The first thing I believe in process, right? I wrote a book, the process, the leadership process. Why do I believe in process? Because process allows you to identify where things went right and where things went wrong. Okay, that's the first thing. And in my process, we start with emotions and awareness of culture and identifying behaviors and a planning process. That allows you to identify specifically what I will hold you accountable to, okay? But the most important part about process is you can't, you can't teach your intuition, right? If you're a leader, and I, this is what I hear all the time, explain to me, when I, I'll say, explain to me why you did what you did. What was your decision-making process? I see it worked out, but tell me why it worked out. Oh, it was just instinct, Errol. I've done this for so long. It's just how I do that. I say, okay, cool. I said, now you're the leader of this team. Can you hold people accountable to your instinct? Well, no, of course not. Like, so I'm not sure what good we're doing here. How do you teach your instinct? Well, what do you mean? Well, you, this is the way you want things done. You think it's right. You have a team. You want them to mirror you. It's your job to train them. Apparently, you're going to try to train them on your instinct. My point is they get it, right? I don't belittle anybody. The point is, I'll say, look, you don't even have to like my process, but you have to figure out what your process is so you can make it clear. Here's how I think. Here's how I do. Therefore, here's how you should think and you should do because I get to do that because I'm the leader. I set the tone, okay? And this is how we will do business. And now I will hold you accountable to that. So as a leader, if you're not clear on how you do business, 
Okay, that's a big thing. Oh, Errol, how do we do business? We can get into that conversation. But you get clear about how you do things, okay? Because you need to be able to explain it. You need to be able to explain why it works or why it didn't work. And, and then you can train people on it. And then once you do that, you have a collective. Because then you start hiring people based on your process and what you do and what you believe. And all of a sudden now, people are clear and the right type of people migrate towards you without a clear process of leadership, okay, and behaviors and planning. You're just going to get random people and you're going to just hope that people latch on. So that's that's the first, that's the hard part, right? We've got, in this day and age, your, your values, your mission statement, all those things have become cliche. And people go through it and they do it and then they put it away. And what I tell people is, if once a week you're not going over your core values, your mission, your vision, and saying, are we doing these things? Are we behaving in this way? And explain to me how we did it or why we didn't, then you're just not going to get that, that cohesion because everybody needs to know, here's how we do it. So that's a... That's my answer to that. Did, did that make any sense? <laughs> right? Because I, yeah, I think what you does. could also find with team guys is we could just talk. <laughs> we could go on. Yeah. You know, I think about, I have this, I have this theory about that so much of business and business success can be tied to the human instinct for survival that we're hardwired for. And that essentially things like uncertainty, things like struggle, are, are low probability ways for living another day, okay? And so that we're essentially hardwired for, for certainty, for repeatability, for things like this, right? And then there's these like crazy 3% of the population that are like, and I think there's no shock how many, like you compare it to across the DOD versus how many people from special operations command backgrounds the, the percentage of entrepreneurs coming out of special operations versus the rest of DOD, I mean, it's way off the charts, right? Is it? I, I, I was yeah. yeah. Action sports people, special ops guys, entrepreneurs, like the overlap is absurd. Yeah. Uh, well, I, it makes sense. You know, one of the things you just said struck, struck a note with me, right? That's important. I get this a lot. Errol, how do I get people to care more? How do I get people to love their jobs, to really buy in? And my response to them is, what do you care if they love their job? Right? Oh. Right. And I said that to somebody who runs a big podcast and they're like, I'm not sure if you should be on. I said, well, hear me out for a second. Okay. I said, the point is you can't control somebody else's motivation. Somebody may need this job, not want it, but need it, have the qualification for it because they need to pay their bills, right? Because they need to buy their kids shoes, whatever it is. That's their motivation. They may hate being an accountant. It's just what they do. You have no control over that. Oh, you're right. I don't have any control. So what do I do about that? And I said, look, here's what you have total control over, the environment, to your point of predictability, right? If you create an environment that is predictable, that is based around established behaviors and established norms, and you hold people to them because you've made it clear and you're repeating it over and over and over again, that's a safe place to work. That's a nice environment to work because you know what you're getting every day. And all of a sudden that person, I tell my copier story all the time. I sold copiers. That was the first thing I did after being a Navy SEAL, okay? But I loved that job, not because I cared about copiers, but because, thank God, my first experience in the private sector, I worked for a great boss, and his environment that he created was predictable. You knew what he expected from you. From a professional standpoint, on the sales cycle, you follow these steps on the sales cycle, and from a, a personal level, you know? No, you know, all the bickering and backstabbing and stuff like that. 
I loved that job because I loved the environment. And all of a sudden, I had a certain amount of pride in that company because I enjoyed going there because it was a good environment. And I liked the people because I knew everybody was buying in to my boss's vision and they were they were on it. So we had all like-minded people. And all of a sudden, we cared about our company and we cared about our product, copiers, <laughs> right? But, but that's the point. So but people care about people, right? People care. And when you're cared want, about, like you want people to love the company, love your people. How hard do you love your people? Somebody on the podcast said, what are you, what are you doing for them when they're not at work and you don't have to? That's a tough look at the mirror boss question, right? Well, well, it is. And here's where people go off course. Well, I'm giving them ping pong tables, right? And I'm giving them these things. Snacks. Okay. I'm not, yeah. And I'm not saying don't do that, right? I'm saying it's irrelevant. Okay. Because what you give them is that predictability in your environment. You give them a clear set of guidelines. Here's how we do it. Here are the behaviors. Bah, 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 bah. Again, people can leave, right? You as the boss, all, you know, and then people, you know, sometimes you have folks like, well, that's very dictatorial. I'm like, no, that's, that's leadership, right? That establishing what you expect from people is, is actually leadership. And, and it is, but again, it, you are giving them the predictability that they want. And it's hard to do that. Well, and this is, this is kind of my point that humans are hardwired to avoid, to avoid the unknown and to avoid struggle because both of those things have high chances of reducing survival. Okay. Mm -hmm. Which means there's a lot of money. If you're willing to embrace the, if, if you're willing to be the one to go take on the unknown and make it predictable, people will pay you a lot for that. If you're yeah. the, if you're the one who's willing to take on the struggle so somebody else doesn't have to, as long as they can afford you, like that pays well. Like I love my clients, but there are plenty of times that I know my clients on our for our consulting company have wimped out and they just want us to solve their problem. And you know what? Wimped out's a really accusatory way to say it, okay? But <laughs> but they, there is this thing of like, well, if I can just pay you guys to handle my struggle, I'm happy to spend the company's money to have you fix so-and-so. I mean, yeah. When I was back when I was doing executive coaching, I remember I got a call and they said, hey, we've got so-and-so. If you can't turn them around in six months, we're going to let them go. I was like, right, just no pressure. Now. Thanks. <laughs> right, just uh, let them go now. <laughs> to, to their credit, though, this individual, they read the books. They took the hard look in the mirror over and over and over. And their turnaround that they took responsibility for was so well, it actually like, expanded our contract like tenfold because people saw how much that individual started taking right. personal responsibility and stuff. But, but my point is this about the, the, the struggle and the unknown, right? Mm -hmm. Is I think about this idea of everything you just said about clarity. And again, it's painful for me to hear because I'm the guy who like listens to endless books, interviews, all these people does all this research and it finally clicks for me. And then I just want to tell people what to do and be, and be that dictator and just have them do exactly what I think and then mm -hmm. be disappointed when they didn't read my mind good enough. You yeah. Know? Well, and it's painful for me to hear you and go, dang it, if I actually want to be successful, I probably need to embrace the suck. <laughs> I need to go through the pain of getting clear. And, and in fact, giving people a little bit of reference of, of why, that, why that direction in the first place and the standard of what success looks like and that, you know what I mean? And like, slow it down, ask, like, there's so many things that I can't articulate that well right off the bat. Like it would take me work to slow down and make it clear for them. Yet what a gift, like if I really love my people, mm -hmm. if I really love my people, why don't I take the pain of getting this clear and measurable 
instead of them having to go through the pain of trying to read my mind. Well, and that's it. So, and, and this is this is common, right? The, the, the struggles that that leaders go through, or and people who want to get be better leader, be better leaders, they're consistent. There's very few things that you look at and go, "Whoa, I've never seen that before," right? They're they're typically pretty consistent. And what I would say to you, if we were on a call right now, right, and you were my my client, I'd say, "Okay, no, you did employ a strategy there." Your strategy was hope and assumption, right? You just hoped that everybody knew what you meant by that. You just assumed that they knew what to do based on kind of what you sort of said, right? People do it all the time because they're afraid to say, no, here's what I want, okay? And it would be painful for me to slow down and verify. So if you had to explain that back to me, what do you think that means? That feels Mm -hmm. inefficient. And under the name of efficiency, Right. I don't want to slow down and go, sorry, I'm interrupting. No, no, it's not. You're not interrupting because it, it just goes to the point. Because again, you're just assuming that they they got you, that they understood you. And when you don't have them read it back to you, they have to read it back to you. Here's what I want you to do. Tell me how you're going to do it. Or here's what I said to do. Let's just make sure you got it right. Let's hear it. Right? Obviously, we all know that saves time in the end. It doesn't take away time. It just, because we want to get rocking and rolling and give those orders, but look, it's a behavior, right? So for, for people like you, Jess, you know, that's why I say in my, in my process, that would be what I call a guideline for behavior that you have to identify based on some pain I put you through to make you identify, tell me what you do, right? Without judgment, what do I do? Well, what do I do? I just give orders and I move on to the next. I don't confirm people know or are, are sure what I said. Okay, great. What's a behavior that you want now? I don't know what that is. You're going to, you're going to say, I need to be more patient. Cool. There you go. You've just established your new behavior for you. That's going to make you better. Another one of my heroes, Chad Ford, he just wrote a book called dangerous love. He's, he's coming on. He, uh, he had this great business picking like NBA draft picks that he sold to ESPN. Now he's a professor of peace building at university in Hawaii. He's this amazing guy. He's like done peace building between in Ireland with Catholics and Protestants and South Africa with blacks and whites and uh, lots of work in Israel. (laughs) Crazy, crazy guy. His book's so good. Dangerous love. Everybody should check it out. But I I took this three-day peace building course from him. And by the way, he says divorces are the hardest mediations he's ever done, including Jews Jews and Arabs in in (laughs) Palestine. um, Give me uh, Arafat, Netanyahu any day. (laughs) But he's got such great stories. But he he talks about, I think it was him who came up with this, the long, short way or the short, long way. Okay. And I think like, if I was to do this and I was to have people read me stuff back, it would also be this moment of reflection for me saying, hey, do I really need to dictate the vehicle and the destination? Or has this person, have we, you know, with what they brought to the table and what we've invested in them, do they actually deserve the autonomy for vehicle selection? That's right. Yeah. Right. And, and if I can't give them vehicle autonomy and let them choose how they're going to get there, should I be rethinking how much we're investing in training and expertise and these things? So that we can trust them. I mean, like, I think again, right. huge respect that I have for the special operations community is I've worked with a lot of other DOD clients, a lot of federal government clients over the years. And there are certain commands where that whole, like, you know, if the Colonel wanted you to have a brain, they'd have issued you one basic, yeah. <laughs> but you know, like, right. You're like, and I've literally had people like, I'll talk to somebody about something. I'll be like, well, let me, you know, let me check with the O6. Right. And it's like, uh, I don't know if that's the kind of question you need to, but because the leadership style and the way people have had their heads bitten off and stuff. Right. Yeah. Where I look at your community and you look at like the amount of responsibility and decision-making that gets put in the hands of E5, E6, you know, 
very, very, you know, compared to an 06, let's call it, you know, low down yeah. the totem pole guys, right? Yeah, of course. Um, huge life and death decisions, sometimes with millions of dollars of equipment. And it's this like taking responsibility up front that you guys do with the like, this is my observation, feel free to contradict me. Yeah. No, but I feel like you do a great job at selection and then you invest in them so heavily that you can trust your frontline people to make decisions without the leader present. And they don't have to be on the webcam 3000 miles away telling you turn right, turn left. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that pain up front for the training and the meaningful repetitions and the willingness to let people mess up in controlled environments where there's some safety and whatever means that they can be sent out without the boss looking over their shoulder with trust instead of yeah. willy nilly sent out. Right. Do you yeah. see it different or how would you say no, it better? No, I don't, I don't see it different. There's, and there's a ton of things to comment on there, but what I'll, what I'll focus on is this. It goes back to the very beginning of what we said. Why, why is it that I feel like the SEAL teams have this little extra unique thing? And it's not to say that the other special ops groups don't do a lot of that, but here's what I'll say, right? Cause I was a SEAL. So I, I, I lived it. When we talk about it is clear on the things we do, right? What do we do? How do we behave? What is the culture? That's it. That is ingrained in every SEAL trainee from day one. You all better be ready to make decisions. You better be ready. It just from day one. Now, as an officer going through, I was a class leader, anything that went wrong, I got yelled at, right? It could have been something over there. You know, I got hammered. You started to figure it out. But the, but their point, after a while, they, they can see where you're starting to glaze over. And they're, then they make the next point and say, okay, hey, sir, let me ask you this. Why did your person over there, your E2, your E3, this is in training now, feel like they could do that? What environment are you creating that made them think that they could do that? And then all of a sudden you start now, now you're back to beginning like, whoa, that's, he's right. What, what haven't I been doing? Or what, you know, what should I be doing to say, no, yeah. guys, here's how we do business. And now all of a sudden it starts over again. Now you're leading everywhere. You're like, okay, everybody, here's the way, you know what I mean? And it starts. But then, then after they get done wrecking me for being the worst leader they've ever seen and no officer like me should be even in Coronado, California, they'll go right over to the enlisted guys and go, hey, where were you idiots? Why didn't you have your officers back? Why aren't you... Right. And then it goes on and on. So when we talk about, so that's your observation. It's an accurate observation. And we talk about why is it such a close knit community? Because everybody knows what's expected of them. And that's the biggest one. Everybody's ready to be a leader. It just from day one. Well, you know, and, and again, I've been lucky enough, you know, the cops are getting dumped on in the news all the time. And yeah. there are absolutely some bad apples, just like there is in any organization. And and there, quite frankly, there's been some incentives and some things that haven't helped that over the years. Okay. But mm -hmm. my best friend, this like totally rebellious punk, snot-nosed kid, skateboarder I grew up with is like one of my favorite cops now. He's on the SWAT team in Lethbridge, Alberta. Okay. <laughs> my, you know, we work with so many cops at Child Rescue who are out there saving kids, mentors, friends, consultants, clients. But there's something I really like about the Bureau. I think about some of the things that the Bureau does well, in my observation, I'd love to hear your, see how you see it different, but yeah. there's a level of like professionalism that is, that is like demanded to be part of the community, taking life serious a bit. So, and obviously that can be done overboard. You can fall off the other side of the balance beam, okay? Mm -hmm. But, you know, and I know in the book, you talk about some struggles you had with some senior leadership and, and yeah. that's things I've heard some other places too, you know, and and, you know, honestly, any of those large government bureaucracies, I hear a lot of, of that, unfortunately. But I think about the passion. 
I don't know if I can say this or not. Well, I'll say it this way. Some of the very, like many of the very most passionate law enforcement officers I've spent time with are bureau guys. Mm-hmm. And regardless of feeling dumped on by, by people 10 floors up, they, they are after this case, blood, sweat, and tears, sleep in a dumpster mm-hmm. kind of, kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we were talking about one of my mentors before this started, who was FBI SWAT like you were and, and mm-hmm. stuff. And I think like that guy might be more patriotic than almost anybody else I know. You think about all these military special ops guys, that guy is like the most hardcore patriot. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like inspiring. It makes me like want to do a better job with my kids of like, of, well, of instilling I, that. I mean, that's great. He's doing a great job then. Look, so I, I have a lot of opinions on law enforcement. First of all, overall opinion is good, right? I, I left the FBI Again, like I say in the book, I, I just there's some things that just left a bad taste in my mouth, and I said it's time to go. I always make the caveat when I criticize law enforcement and the FBI, FBI in particular, and say, but some of the best leaders I've ever worked with, worked for, or observed are in the FBI. Okay, and they just are. Now, and it's those. So the guy you're talking about, right? He's everybody is good in the FBI. Everybody's good, right? Some people lose their way. Some people get right. As we've seen with this 2016 election thing, right? That Those guys lost their way. They just did. That was all bad. But, but, but by and large, and I don't want to say this thing, like it's a few bad apples. There's an overall culture thing that needs to be, that needs to be put in place more, but now to the good side. Yes. I have worked with local law enforcement, state law enforcement. I've worked with law enforcement and intelligence overseas. I have a vast book of experience. And I will say, if you get a FBI special agent who has decided to lock on, they're the last person, if you're a criminal, you want locking on because of all the things you said, right? It's not to say that the local guy who locks on isn't dangerous in a good way, right? He's, he's going to get out and get the bad guys. But if I had to get that tiger to lock on, I'm, I am going to go to the FBI first. <laughs> okay. And, and, you know, for whatever reason. Yeah. Listen, I don't want, you know, there are some absolutely great DHS people I know, especially the the ICE Internet Crimes or um, mm-hmm. I can't remember what it is the guys who do the human trafficking stuff. Yeah. Especially I love those. You know, some of my best friends are are you know NYPD cops going out helping kids, right? Go dark web stuff. SWAT team guys, they're, they're such great guys all over. But there is something special in the bureau I find about that. Like man, just like missile lock on the mission. Yeah. And like, they care about this country. They care about this society. And I guess that I see a high level of sacrifice in some of them for the mission. And I I just have a lot of respect for it. Well, and it's, and it, and it gets easy because the FBI has such a great mission. You know, I, that's, I loved being a special agent for the FBI. I loved it. The, the, you want to, so look, when you're, when you're in the military, right, we do great things in the military, but you get assigned your mission right? SEAL team, whoever, you go take down that thing. Now, however you decide to do it, you use all your ingenuity and leadership and all that stuff. The FBI, maybe you'll get say, hey, here's your case. I'm going to give you this case. But the best agents are the ones who say, I don't, don't give me anything. I'm going to go find the best case, right? You put me on organized, Russian organized crime. I am going to get so entrenched in the Russian community and find sources. Like that mission is beautiful. Right. And then and then the resources you're able to use to. So, yeah, you get somebody who cares and then with the flexibility they have and how they work their case and then some of the resources. Yeah, it can it can be a dangerous group if you're a bad guy, for sure. 
And by the way, not just thank you for your service in, in our country's military, but can I thank you specifically for getting out there and trying to help kids and going after Russian organized crime, specifically with the trafficking of women and children. And, you know, as someone who that has unfortunately affected our family, that's a big thank you for me to you and, and the work your wife has done. Well, you know, well, my, my wife, she, like we talked about, she was an analyst in the FBI and I worked with analysts again in every organization around the world. And she was the best, clearly. And, and we could go and she needs to be out more in front. She's working the, the business with me now, but she worked crimes against children. It, it was tough for her. And when they had a success, she was very proud of it. I worked trafficking in Russian organized crime, not with kids, but with the, the girls who, you know, were promised something over here. We're going to get you a job, you know, as a waitress or whatever. And then, you know, ended up being forced into prostitution and things like that. And, you know, I wish I had more success. You know, I, I, I did. I had a little success. And, but anyway, I digress. You're, you're welcome. It's just such a, on the human level, when you see people who are young, young people, forget about, you know, kids are one thing. That's a whole different category. But young girls, young ladies, 17 years old, 18 years old, just trying to say, I'm going to get out there to America and do this thing. And then all of a sudden, here's what they're bought into it's tough to watch, man. And it's tough to, so when you get a victory, it's, it's, uh, it feels pretty good, but I, I certainly wouldn't say that I put a major dent in that problem, but thank you anyway. <laughs> yeah, no, don't get me wrong. There's, there's so much work left to do that, yeah. you know, that's to, that issue like will totally make me cry at certain times and stuff. Right. But I honestly, I think about it as like my favorite hobby. Like the successes are the most fun thing. I don't know, next to like having a child born, like that is Knowing that somebody's life got changed that much has been some of the most rewarding things I've been lucky enough to be a part of. You know, it's like nobody's like, oh, Jess, thank you for being a snowboarder. That's you're just such a good human for being a snowboarder. Right. Honestly, combating yeah. trafficking is more fun than snowboarding. And I love snowboarding. I We built a house out in the mountains. We're right by the U International Forest outside of Park City so that mm. I can snowmobile from our backyard so nice. I can snow, snowboard. <laughs> like, nice. I, I love snowboarding. Okay. Right. And it's more fun than snowboarding. Yeah. Well, it's look, it's, it's, it's important. I, I don't know that there's any more important work in law enforcement than the exploitation and recovery of children. Yeah. What else? Well, is and I'm, I'm going to make a quick plug for, for one of the groups we really have a ton of respect for that we've been helping lately. And hopefully everybody listening can check out and decide if you guys want to help, but it's called America's kids belong. And our, my, my one business partner, Lindsay Hadley, who was the first executive director of child rescue. And it's really the reason it, it got launched in a way that's lasted over 10 years, but she introduced me to these guys and they have been able to get permission in a bunch of different States now to I'll back up. According to the Bureau, 60% of the kids that they rescue on these different raids and stuff have been through the foster system. Okay. Yeah. We've got huge holes in our foster system. There's some great foster parents. And then there's some things that we probably need to take responsibility as voters to, to change, right? Have, have some lawmakers change some laws for us. But what this group does, America's Kids Belong, is they've got permission to shoot these little videos of the most at-risk kids in the foster care system. So like out here in Utah, out of you know 3,500 kids, there's like 350 where there's essentially no parent to go home to. They're ward of the state. They're mm-hmm. never going home kind of thing, right? right. Those are the most at-risk kids. There's something like a you know, 0.3% chance that a 14-year-old like that or 16-year-old like that's going to get adopted. Like they are on their way to aging out of the system and 
you know, youth homelessness is almost the same issue as, as child trafficking in this country, unfortunately, right? Well, these guys, for a thousand bucks, they'll make a video of this kid with permission from the, you know, Department of Child Services or whatever, right? And about these videos are inspirational. Everybody should go watch them. It's like, what do you hope for out of a family? What are you interested in? All this oh, stuff. Wow. Yeah. Total tearjerkers, right? Oh my God. Yeah. And 20% of these kids, don't completely quote me on these stats, but these are basically stats. 20% of the kids get adopted in the first 30 days. Like half of them get adopted within a year. And of the ones who haven't aged out of the system, almost all of them are getting adopted within two years. And that whole, that's like a thousand bucks. Do you know how much wow. we spend on rescue missions? Do you know how many years of pain that kid would go through in PTSD and all this type of work that lasts four decades as someone who coaches trafficking survivors and, and women who have been abused? Okay. We get to skip all that pain and the, like the inner capitalist of like the dollar difference of, you know, yeah, it was a seal. One of my mentors, he and I got to go teach this, like we went to Nigeria and taught the Nigerian special operations command when it was getting stood up this, this, in this conference thing, he said, you can have a, you can have a quart of sweat or a gallon of blood. Right. Right. right, right. Preparation. Right. Right. So anyways, there's my soapbox in a minute. America's well, getting it, along. We're supporting them. Hopefully everybody else can too. Yeah, I was going to reverse roles with you like it was my podcast. So so Jess, where can we learn more about this, right? <laughs> yeah. But that's, a, that's an amazing story. And those stats are amazing. And, you know, how everybody doesn't know those stats. How, you know, I don't know, right? Because what, what the hell are we doing? You know, if, if that's really the success rate for a thousand bucks to make a video for a kid, and all of a sudden, I, I mean, I don't know how. Yeah, how it's, we... it's literally americaskidsbelong.org. And, yeah. and Child Rescue Association, we've we've been helping out. My, my wife is actually going and doing some of the interviews for the video. We've got our filmer helping with, with filming. We, Anyways, they're, they're just great people. Hopefully everybody can check them out. I mean, that's, that's amazing. Good, good for you. I really appreciate that. You know, it's interesting. They got to work with Mark Wahlberg. I don't know if you saw that movie uh, that came out called... Oh, dang it. Instant Family. Did you hear about this movie, Instant Family? It's so no, entertaining. I, I've, True story. I watched the one where he was with Will Ferrell. That's not, that's... <laughs> no, no, no. Okay. This one's, this one's more serious than that. Oh, um, it is? Okay. It's a serious yeah, yeah. <laughs> And it's just this, this couple that couldn't have kids. It's such like a real honest look of adoption and the hardships and the, but it's super funny Total tearjerker, but super rewarding. Okay. Great family movie. Anyways, all right, instant family. Check it well, out. We, look, we do we do movie night here at our house on Fridays and or Saturdays. So we're, we're gonna we're gonna check that out now. Good good shout out to Mark Wahlberg because he needs Earl and Jess's <laughs> shout out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now he's gonna make it. That guy's really on the. That's rise. right. I don't know if look, if you if you haven't heard of this guy, Mark Wahlberg. He does a couple of movies, you know, check him out. He's good stuff. <laughs> okay. So besides going to leader193.com, besides buying the book, where can people connect with you? Where can they follow you? What's, what should they be doing? Yeah. Like you said, leader193.com, you know, we, we do a lot, right? We, I'm a Wim Hof method instructor. I employ that in my leadership stuff. If you want to learn more about that, we've got that on the website, all my leadership offerings from executive one-on-one coaching virtual group coaching, offsites, you know, you can, you can go there, you can find my book there, my blogs, all that stuff. Social media, my two big platforms are Instagram and Facebook at leader193. So all things leader193, there's nobody else out there that has leader193. <laughs> <laughs> this is great. Well, thanks for doing this, man. No, Jess, I appreciate it. This was a lot of fun. A, we, we, we hit a lot of different topics, so that was good. <laughs> okay, bye everyone. All right.